Okay, trivia time. What do you think are the three greatest movies of all time? What do you think? You can tell me in the chat. You can argue with your friend about this. Most websites that I checked said The Godfather, Schindler's List, and The Shawshank Redemption, but you might disagree with that. Who do you think are the three greatest athletes of all time? Who would you have up there in your top three? Maybe Michael Jordan, Wayne Gretzky, of course. Maybe Michael Phelps. What about this? What do you think, pardon me, who do you think are the three greatest musical composers of all time? Uh, excluding Chris Tomlin and Shania Twain, who do you think are the greatest composers of all time? Most critics that I saw online said that it's usually Beethoven, Mozart, and Bach, Johann Sebastian Bach. He wrote a piece of music about Romans chapter eight. Well, he kind of wrote it for Romans chapter eight. At that time, music largely lived in the church in the liturgical setting. And he wrote a piece of music about Romans chapter eight. Without looking at your phones, do you know the name of that piece? If you don't, I'll tell you right now, it is called Jesu Meine Freude. Jesu Meine Freude. You can try saying that to your neighbor. Don't spit on them. Jesu Meine Freude. It means Jesus my joy. And you can listen to it. It's actually about 20 minutes long. It's very beautiful. It's worth your time. We can learn a lot about the book of Romans by studying these fantastic pieces of music. Some scholars have said that Romans has almost a symphonic structure to it. There's different elements of it and they build on each other. It returns to other elements before. It comes to this big crescendo. And if you went to the symphony and you really wanted to hear one part in particular, let's say you go to the symphony and you really want to hear the fifth movement, you might be sitting there kind of tapping your foot impatiently waiting for them to get to that part. You might even begin to resent the other parts of the symphony. Why are, they, why are they wasting time with these? Why can't they get to the good part? And maybe they finally get to the fifth movement, the part that you want, and you're very happy. But you run a risk of actually missing out on the significance of that portion because you weren't paying attention to everything that happened before. Now, Romans is said to have a symphonic structure in that Paul will introduce a concept. He'll develop it for a while, but then he'll set it to the side. He'll talk about some other things, and then he'll return to his original idea, but bringing all of the resources from the totality of his discussion. The word condemnation only occurs twice in the New Testament. It occurs in Romans chapter 5 and Romans chapter 8. And many scholars think that the beginning of Romans chapter 8 is one of these symphonic returns. That Paul is returning in Romans chapter 8 to a concept that he brought up in Romans chapter 5, developed in 6 and 7, and now he returns to it in chapter 8. So in Romans chapter 5, Paul is talking about how we have peace with God through faith. Therefore, as one trespass led to, that's our word, condemnation, for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So he's contrasting humanity in Adam and humanity in Christ, this new people that's being made, that's being developed. 
Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So let's look at this uh, from really high up. Let's cruise through all the chapters. Romans 5 is justification by faith. Romans 6 is being dead to sin and alive to God, how we're no longer slaves to sin. Romans 7, released from the law. We just looked at that, how we're no longer under the rule and captivity of the law. And now Romans 8 is talking about this new people, this new life in the Spirit. And so Paul begins with this grand climax, this big finale. People refer to Romans as the great Eight, this fantastic explanation of the gospel, because Paul's been taking his time and laying all these elements, and now it's all coming together in this crescendo. So now he can say, there is therefore now no condemnation, that's that word, for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is Paul's main sentence that he will spend the rest of Romans unpacking. And even this here, sometimes people describe Paul's arguments in his writing is almost like a like a rose head, a rose bush, a, a flower <laughs> that's blossoming and expanding. Because he puts his first main idea here, he says it in verse 1, and then he says it in verse 2, he expands on it a little bit more, and then verses 3 and 4, he expands on it a little bit more, and then you see 5 to 8, and then you see 9 to 11, expanding on this concept in greater depth. And so Paul will be developing these ideas. We see it further like this. Let me show you here. This concept of no condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the law of the Spirit has set you free from the law of sin and death. It's verses 1 and 2. Because God has acted in His Son and His Spirit to condemn sin and provide life. That's verses 3 and 4. Because there are two types of being and you are in the Spirit, verses 5 to 8, because these two types are heading for either death or life, eternal damnation or eternity with God. Paul is showing this contrast between these old ways and these new ways, this new way of being compared to the old way of being, the new identity we have compared to the old identity we have. That's what's happening in these verses at the start of Romans chapter 8. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? The spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We saw Romans chapter 6, chapter 7. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. That's what we talked about in Romans 7. We want to do the right thing. We can't. And so the law reveals what's there. The law might even provoke what's there, but ultimately we're helpless. So by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, God is sending Jesus to the point of the problem. The sinful flesh. So Jesus comes in our form and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So Israel has this problem with sin. The sin of the world we see in Israel. And the sin of Israel is put on one man, the representative king, the Messiah. And this one person deals with, how might we say, is condemned with, he became sin, who knew no sin, Jesus takes on this sin. So that the law might be fulfilled in us, us in the Messiah. So God condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus. This is actually the image 
of an Old Testament sacrifice. We see this talked about in Isaiah 53. The punishment that brought us peace fell upon him. By his stripes we are healed. So this is why we see there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in the Messiah because the condemnation of sin has already taken place in him. So condemnation, what does that word mean? Condemnation is, you can think of it like this, it's to express complete disapproval. To condemn something is to completely write it off. It's similar with, um, compare it to a censure, to criticize or to attack, to denounce something. Our culture today, we love to condemn. We love to denounce, to censure, to criticize, and to attack. So that's condemnation. Now there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But if you think about this, Satan loves to condemn. Satan loves to condemn in two ways. Well, he lies about condemnation, perhaps in two ways. The first is this. He tells the non-Christian that they are not condemned. He tells them, you are fine as you are. You don't need redemption. You don't need God. You can be God. There is no God and God is you at the same time in the same way. That's what Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3 are talking about. Our need for rescue. The justness of God's judgment in these ways. So that's the first way Satan lies about condemnation. He tells people that need Jesus, they don't need Jesus. The second is this. He tells Christians that they are condemned. You might feel that right now. You might feel this upon yourself in this moment. Revelation 12.10 describes Satan as an accuser. The accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night. Now the accusation doesn't need to be true. It just needs to be believed for it to ruin your relationship, right? We said there's no condemnation. But if you believe that about yourself, that's all it takes for it to challenge your relationship, to hurt and impede your relationship with God. Consider a, a married couple. The husband may be faithful to his wife, but if she doesn't believe that, that's all it takes for it to harm their relationship and vice versa. So you can be faithful, but if your spouse doesn't believe it, that's still damage being done. Now this false condemnation uh, of Christians comes in at least three ways. The first is there's condemnation through yourself. You might be condemning yourself. You might be well aware of the evils in your past, the sinful things that you have done. And you might say, God, I know you forgave me, but I don't forgive myself. So you're very aware of your shortcomings, your errors, and your faults. May I encourage you in this way that you also need to be aware of Christ's victory, his deliverance, and the justification that we have in him. Condemnation happens when I think of myself. Worship happens when I think of Jesus. The believer who condemns themselves, they believe the falsity of a half-truth. I'm not saying what you've done isn't important. What I'm saying is what Jesus has done is more important. I'm not saying your past isn't big. What Christ has done is bigger. So this is the danger of the believer that condemns themselves. All of your sin was buried with Jesus. So that's the first way that Satan can lie to us about condemnation. The second is this, condemnation through others. We can, see, we can receive condemnation through others. Perhaps there's a family member or a friend in your life. Maybe your spouse does this. Maybe you do this to your spouse. 
but you bring up the things they've done in their past. You don't let it go. They've got skeletons in their closet and you go digging them up. Back in our Finding Common Ground series, I talked about how resentment sometimes it can be like a shovel. And when people are resentful, they can start digging up things in your past, things that Christ died for. So we can receive condemnation through others. And finally, there can be condemnation through Satan. This is perhaps the most difficult and delicate one to explain. But consider this. Consider that everything God creates, Satan counterfeits. Augustine said that evil is the privation of good. So consider God makes something good and Satan perverts it. And that's a way of understanding evil and sin in the world. Think of a sin in the world and how that is a perversion of a good thing that God made. Okay, so Satan counterfeits everything that God makes. Jesus said he would send the Holy Spirit to help us, to convict us. But Satan sends his spirits to condemn us. It's the fake. It's the counterfeit. Conviction is hopeful. Condemnation is hopeless. Conviction brings hope. It says, I love you, but you're better than this. This issue is wrong. Let's help you get through this so you can live the way God intended for you to. Let's get rid of that. Jesus died for it, so I don't need to punish you for it, but let's get you back on track. Condemnation is hopeless. When we're being condemned, there's language like, always and never. Here's a tell, perhaps, of when this, this condemnation is, is, uh, is not from God. Think of how you receive these things. In, in your mind, right, these, these voices that whisper in the back of your head, usually it's the second person personal pronoun. It's the language of you. So you're being spoken to. And when you're being spoken to, ask yourself, um, is this how God sees me? Is it or is it not? So this language of you and this general language of you always or you never do this. Perhaps it's speaking to you in this ways of this is who you are. You are a, what do you hear? You can fill in the blank. You are a failure. You are a screw up. You are a burden. You are a mistake. You are an idiot, a mess, a failure, a disaster. Conviction is very specific. Condemnation is very general. This is a specific issue versus all of you. God convicts you to build the relationship. Satan condemns you to break the relationship. Sin explains some of what you do, but a redeemed child of God explains all of who you are. It doesn't mean you're perfect. It means you are new and Jesus will make you perfect. You're not rejected. You are accepted. You're not damaged. You're healed. You're not cursed. You're blessed. You're not out. You are in. So positionally, you are in the spirit. Practically, the spirit is in you. We have a new relationship with God, a new mind, a new nature, new desires, a new power, a new life, and a new destiny that we will share with him. And all of these elements of newness are things that we experience and receive by the Spirit and through the Spirit because of what was accomplished in the life of Jesus. It's a mouthful, but it is glorious. Okay, now, nestled within this claim that there is no condemnation, there is an implication. So now that you are not condemned, now that you are not under the power of sin, under the demands of the law, now... 
By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh for us, he condemned sin in the flesh, okay, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled. The requirements of the law now might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Augustine put it like this. He said, law was given that grace might be sought. Grace was given that the law might be fulfilled. So first we see grace was given that law might be sought. Remember chapter 7. Oh, pardon me. I'm already screwing myself up. Law was given that grace might be sought. So we were given the law. We realize our shortcomings. We're aware of how much we need someone to help us. And so we receive grace. We seek grace now because we know we need a savior. And now that we have received it, grace was given that the law might be fulfilled. So now, because of the spirit, because of the grace we receive, we are now free to actually live out how God said we ought to live, how we ought to interact with him, how we ought to interact with those around us. We now have the spirit in us empowered to overcome the sinful desires of the flesh, this wrestle in chapter 7, and the, and the law might be fulfilled. So we see not only that we are freed from being condemned by our sin, and also we are freed from being complacent of our sin. Let's see how Paul develops this. Continue reading with me, verses 5 to 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things on the Spirit, things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So Paul's explaining this relationship, those who are in the flesh and in the spirit. And uh, when he says in the flesh, that doesn't mean people who have a body. Flesh, it's, it's kind of this um, term that references the totality of the fallen world. Those who are still in Adam, those who are still under the law, those who are still in their sin. That's what the flesh means. Those who are still in the sin, in the sin, in sin, versus those who are in the spirit. This is the relationship Paul is building, and now he's going to talk about us. Continue reading. Verses 9 to 11. You, however, it's talking to the believer, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Do you see that last part? Through his spirit who dwells in you. You see the spirit mentioned almost every other verse in this portion of Romans. And the focus isn't on the Holy Spirit itself, but rather what is accomplished through the spirit. So this is saying you are in the spirit, the spirit's in you, and now you are on this side of the equation that Paul just developed. And now let's wrap it up. 
verses 12 to 13. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, not to your old ways, to live according to the old ways. That was Romans chapter 6. Shall we remain in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And for the Christian, this this isn't a threat. It's a promise. This is an assurance. Those of you who have the Spirit, you will live. So the Spirit helps us to live this new life. The Spirit helps you to live new life. So if the law is to help us live correctly as it was intended, if the law is to show us how we ought to interact with God, how we ought to treat each other, how we ought to treat the things around us, stewarding creation, it's no good running it through the wrong sort of appliance. This is what we saw in chapter 7. We saw the person who recognized the goodness of the law, the goodness of the life God has for us, but they were unable to do it because they didn't have the spirit with them. It's like putting diesel in an electric car. It's like putting kerosene in an electric lamp. There's going to be an explosion. It's going to short circuit. And we saw that in the person of chapter 7, the person with these competing desires. Now we have the spirit in us. We are a new creation, now empowered to live rightly with God, with others, and with the world around us. So the challenge is this. We don't just, we don't just need to know what we need to do. We need help in actually doing it. Uh, this past week, I was, um, was doing an errand for my wife. I was picking up a couch, uh, a couch, a futon that we were buying from somebody online. It was from Kijiji or Facebook Marketplace. And so I drove up to the place, I got the couch, I put all the seats down in our little SUV and it didn't fit. It was too big for our car. And the guy I was buying it from, he was this Russian guy, he said, eh, no problem, you will strap it to your roof. I will strap it to my roof. Yeah, man, you've got to do what you've got to do. Do you have rope? I had some rope in the car and I took the rope and he said, okay, this is how you tie it. He said, you take a loop, you take a loop, tie, double tension, very good. And then he drove away. And so I, I saw, you know, this, this little loop setup that he did uh, and I tried to do it and I didn't know how to do it. I was saying, I take loop, I take loop, and I could, I could talk like the guy, but I couldn't tie the knots like the guy. And so I, I tied just some random knots. I tied the whole thing down, uh, prayed over it, started driving. And of course, the whole trip home was on the gardener and the DVP. And as, we're, <laughs> as I'm driving, I see the rope starting to fray that was holding this futon down and other drivers, they're, they're swerving out of the way. Children are pointing and, and crying. Mothers are shielding their eyes. I was, I prayed a lot and that was a 15 minute drive. Felt like an hour. Uh, thankfully got home. The thing was fine, but I just, I didn't need to just see these funky knots. I needed someone to help me make all these funky knots. And that Russian man left me cold and alone and scared in the rain with the futon. I don't want to talk about it, but Jesus said when he was leaving that he was sending a helper someone to help us with this new life. And four of these things in this new life that we see in chapter eight is this, walking according to the spirit. That's in verse four, living according to the spirit in verse five, setting minds on the things of the spirit. That's verse five in verse 13, putting to death the deeds of the body by the spirit, by the spirit and through the spirit. 
So now the, the Spirit frees us from being complacent about the sin in our lives, about the old ways of how we used to live. We see it for what it is, and now we're finally able to overcome this by the Spirit and through the Spirit, unlike the person in chapter 7 who was trapped in their sin, unable to help it, unable to deal with Mr. Hyde, as we talked about. However, just like how the, the Christian can be freed from condemnation, but still living under it, so too um, can we be free from complacency, but still fall into it. Complacency is, uh, what would you say? A false assurance of one situation, being too comfortable where they are. So complacency says, I can be a Christian and keep on doing this. God doesn't care about this. I won't be happy if I give up this. It's not a big deal. It's not a big sin. God doesn't really care about it. God doesn't care about my tithing. God doesn't care about my gossiping. God doesn't care about my bitterness, my anger, my jealousy, my hate, my resentment. I'm not a serial killer. I just file my taxes creatively. I'm not a bad person. I just kind of, you know, peruse the internet a little bit too much sometimes. I just show up to church, tear people down, criticize them, say, God bless, go back home and have Swiss chalet. So what's your pet sin? What's that thing that's too valuable for you to give up? John Owen says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And there is a, a real danger for the Christian who gets proficient at stifling the voice of the Spirit. We won't be perfect until Jesus takes us home. But let us not forget that we have been made new, that we have the Spirit of God in us, and that if we let him, he will convict us of where we need to grow. And if we let him, he will help us in this process. So for the Christian wrestling with condemnation, be assured of your salvation. And for the Christian wrestling with complacency, be challenged with the reality of your renewal. Today we've looked at how God has freed us from the condemnation of sin. We're made new, being transformed, and that transformation has freed us from the complacency toward our sin. Condemnation is the lie about our identity. Complacency is the lie about our actions. Condemnation says, I'm too messed up. Complacency says, I'm too comfortable. Justification is the truth about our identity. Sanctification is the truth about our actions. Jesus says, I have made you new and I am making you new. The errors of condemnation and complacency lead us to walking, lead us to walking a spiritual life that is lame. That's with a limp. We've been given a new identity and we've been given a new power by the Spirit. So the question is this, where are you today living in condemnation? Where are you living in complacency? Where do you need to ask for assurance by the Spirit? Where do you need to ask for conviction by the Spirit, for help and empowerment by the Spirit? Would God work in our hearts today on this? And let's expand this. What does a church look like that is marked by condemnation and complacency? What does a church look like where the people are marked like this? Can you think of this?
Do examples come to mind? Quick to condemn each other, complacent of the sin in their lives, quick to point it out in others and slow to recognize the realness of it in their own lives, comfortable and just consuming and critiquing. These are churches that just become social groups that calcify, stagnate and die because they're more concerned with protecting their comfort and pushing people out than living by the Spirit. Now compare this to a church that celebrates the new life that we have in Jesus. And we're empowered by the life in Christ, growing, encouraging one another, not free of helping each other with our faults, but also not telling us that we are only our faults. What would Bayview look like if we were marked by this? And don't just think what Bayview would look like if the staff members did this, if Sawyer did this, but everyone in the church. We are neither condemned by our sin, nor are we complacent to our sin. And when we feel the pull of this, when we feel the condemnation, when we feel our complacency, we can remind ourselves of this. I have been made new, and I am being made new. Let's remember this glorious truth that we see in Romans chapter 8, and let's continue to respond in worship. Would you pray with me? God, thank you that we are no longer condemned because of what you accomplished through Christ and what we receive now in the Spirit. God, would you forgive us when we forget this, when we either fall back into our condemnation and forget what you've done, or when we're complacent of where we are and forget of how you are growing us, God, and who you want us to be. So would you gently encourage us and nudge us toward this, Father? Would we love you more and would we love our old ways less? God, we thank you for this. We praise you for this. It's in your name we say amen.